Good morning, and happy Mother's Day. I hope you are finding a creative way to celebrate your mom today. Uh, we're so grateful that you joined us through our church website and on Facebook or through YouTube. Um, call your attention to the front page of the bulletin. Uh, there is information about our summer series for June and July. We've done this for several summers now. We had already made the decision for uh, these lessons to be on Tuesday nights, and you may uh, want to make note of that. What we've decided for the month of June at least is these lessons will be online, uh, again, through a website, Facebook, and YouTube. And plus, doing these on Tuesdays will help accommodate the teen and children's classes that are now on Wednesday evenings. Um, also this, we've been asking for you to pray for the elders as they are deciding when and how we can resume worship at the building. And we're going to share more about that as we close today, so stay with us. Also, encourage you to check the bulletin for a list of online Bible classes. There's also the insert for the home devotionals, and all of these are just ways to help you stay in the Word, and we hope that you will. Again, if you need prayer with an elder or minister, we are available at any time. Just give us a call, reach out to us, and we'll be glad to make that connection. Um, I appreciate Barry's lesson last week about helping uh, during these very challenging times. And if you missed that, that lesson is available online and you can catch up with that as well. The men who are leading us today in worship, uh, Tim Raines will begin with prayer and scripture reading. Uh, Philip Young Sr. will officiate over our communion time. And then Wade Denny will close our worship and, uh, with prayer and a special announcement. Let's begin. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let us pray. Our most gracious and loving Father, we bow before you knowing that you are our God. You are a God of peace, you are a God of mercy, and a God of justice. You are also a God of healing. And God, we know right now in this nation and across the world, we deal with the coronavirus, and our hearts go out to those who have been affected directly by it, and those also been affected by it indirectly. We pray for you, to you, Father, for your healing hand to be upon this nation and across the world, Father. We pray that a resolution to this virus will come quickly. And Father, as we endure these times, Father, for those of us who are shut in and we know that we have to adjust to a new lifestyle, give us peace in our hearts knowing that this is temporary and there will be a day that we get to come home for those who are faithful to you and will never have to face something like this again. Father, as we gather together, through the means in which we can, we pray that our hearts focus upon you, Father. As we listen to the lesson today, that we look at your word, look at the words, and know that you are our God, and these are words that help us to be able to make it through this life, that we might be able to stay faithful to you, Father, and be able to one day come home. Father, we pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are uh, our elderly, we pray for those who are struggling to just have basic means of survival. We pray, heart, Father, that we be able to help them any way that we can, and you be with them as well. Lord, as we do hear the lesson today, we pray that what is taught to us will be within truth, and that we'll be able to grow from it, Father. We are thankful for the peace that we have and the freedom we have in this nation. Father, we know that you've given this to us. And Father, we pray that we never take it for and take advantage of that. Father, as we continue in our daily lives, we pray that you guide us every day and help us to know that even when we mess up and we slip, that your forgiving arms are always around us. Help us to search your word every day and to grow every day. God, we're very thankful for the many blessings you have given us. We have our homes, we have our families. We even have extras, Father. We know that these things come from you. We are thankful for your word. We're most thankful for your son who died on the cross for our sins. God, we always pray that you continue to be with us in our lives. Always help us to remember 
the God that you are and that you are our God and that you are our Father. Thank you once again for everything. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.
As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I'd like for us to remember in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, uh, verses 23 through 25, Paul is quoting the words of Jesus concerning the Lord's Supper. And there we read that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Today I want us to remember three things about Jesus as we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper. In the Gospel of John, chapters 19 and 20, we see three things about Jesus to tell us who he is. First, we see Jesus as a son. It is appropriate on this day, which is Mother's Day, in this country, to see Jesus as a son. As he is hanging on the cross, bearing the sins of mankind, Jesus looks down from the cross and sees his mother, Mary. In the midst of his crucifixion, Jesus remembers his mother. Looking at Mary, Jesus tells his mother that John would take care of her. What a wonderful, wonderful example of love for a mother. For us today, Mother's Day, as we remember that Jesus was a son. Second, we see Jesus as a sacrifice. Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to earth to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. No substitute would be sufficient to satisfy God than the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. Each Sunday when we take the bread and the fruit of the vine, we remember Jesus as our Savior and our sacrifice. Third, we see Jesus as the Savior. Can you imagine what was going through the minds of Jesus' followers following the crucifixion? Even though Jesus had told them that he would die, I think they never fully understood what he meant. Now Jesus is dead. The Messiah is dead. How were they feeling? What were they thinking? However, on the third day, Jesus was alive. He has overcome death and Satan. So today, as we take these emblems, regardless of where we are in our homes or here this morning, may each of us remember Jesus as a son, as a sacrifice, and as our Savior. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we're so blessed to be able to gather together, if not Physically, we gather in our minds and in our hearts through the blessings of wonderful technology that we enjoy today. And Father, wherever we are, we are pausing to look to you, to praise you as our God and as our Father, the one who loves us so much that you sent your Son to die upon the cross for our sins. Nothing we could ever do could wipe away our sins. It took your son to be the sacrifice and the savior for us. This morning as we take this bread, we pray that we will follow the instructions of Jesus, that we do so in remembrance of him. Remembering his body that hung upon that cross, the awful crucifixion that he endured,
knowing, Father, that he was doing it to fulfill the will of God, to take the burden of sins for all mankind upon himself. May we remember his perfect life as we take this bread this morning, remembering that Jesus is the bread of life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us pray again. O oh God in heaven, as we continue this memorial, remembering the blood that Christ shed upon that cross, remembering the horrific pain and suffering that he endured, the physical pain, the emotional pain that he endured upon that cross, freely giving his blood to atone for our sacrifices, for our sins. We pray, Father, that as we take this fruit of the vine this morning, we will remember the significance of the blood sacrifice of Christ, that it's only through his blood that we can be whole and pleasing and acceptable in your sight, that our sins are washed away and we are as white as snow in your eyes because of the blood of Christ. As we take this cup at this time, Bless us that we remember this sacrifice. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Romans chapter 8. I've called this series Great Chapter 8 because it really is great. When you find yourself in a hard spot, maybe a moment of weak faith or uncertainty, this chapter can truly help. So far in our study of this chapter, we've noticed the contrast between guilt or grace. When your past comes knocking at your door and you're overwhelmed with guilt from what you've done, Romans 8 reminds us that that is nothing more than Satan who is trying to take you down. And you remember eight, Romans, 8 chapter, uh, Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Jesus has set us free. In the second section, we notice the contrast between flesh and the spirit. Because there are days when you feel like walking with Jesus can be two steps forward, one step back. You want to do right. You want to make the right choices. You want to follow Jesus. And some days you don't. Some days you struggle. And Romans 8 reminds us that we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Verse 11 says, we have the same spirit that brought Christ from the dead living in us. And oh, what good news that is. Today we're talking about hope. Where is your hope? Do you have any hope? And this may be more important than we realize. And I want to think about that for the next couple of moments. Because where you put your hope determines who you are right now. It determines how you live right now. To begin, think for a moment about some of the things that are determined by the hope that we have. Put a couple of these on the outline if you want to follow along. One thing that hope affects is our perspective. Our hope affects our perspective. What we put our hope in may allow us to have joy or peace regardless of our circumstances. But if we put our hope in the wrong thing, it can lead to stress and despair, even depression, because it's been stripped away. So in so many ways, where we put our hope can help determine our perspective. Or secondly, think about this. Having the right hope dictates our purpose in life. Ultimately, wherever your hope is, that's what you live for. Or to say it in reverse order, whatever you're living for, that is where you are putting your hope. For some people, they put their hope in money. That's their purpose in life. Money, stuff. Some put their hope in their marriage. It's all about their marriage. That's what they're living for. Some people put their hope in their children. Some people are living for good health, longevity. That's where their hope lies. But the challenge is that many of us end up putting our hope in something that inevitably is going to be stripped away, taken away from us. It's just going to happen. That's why Paul would write earlier about a living hope, a hope that does not die. Well, here's one more thing the right hope does. It determines our ability to endure. And many of you know this firsthand. It's not a matter of if there will be challenges, but really more so when there will be challenges. And when that happens, do these challenges lead to despair? Well, it depends on where your hope is. If you have placed your hope in things that are temporary, you can expect despair to come. But if you put your hope in something outside of this life, something bigger than this life, then it will give you strength you never knew you had. Paul wrote a phrase in Romans 5, a hope that does not disappoint. And his name is Jesus. That's where we are to place our hope. So I put this on the screen. It's also on the outline if you're taking notes. In Romans 8, we're challenged to put our hope in the right place. And Romans 8 challenges us to look beyond suffering and to remember our hope is in heaven. So we're going to begin in chapter 8, verse 18. You might notice this. Maybe even mark it in your Bibles. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The ESV says sufferings of this present time. The NIV says present sufferings. 
It's what you're going through now. And that phrase that Paul uses is very generic, and I think he does that by design, because if Paul had said false imprisonment, then those who are hearing that for the first time or reading it today might think, well, what about my chronic illness? Or if Paul had said health issues, someone else would think, well, what about my marriage that's in trouble? So today we can read this eternal truth about present suffering and fill in the blank. What is your present suffering? It will help us as we talk about hope. So take just a moment and think about that. What would your present suffering be? Maybe your present suffering deals with your own physical health. Or, or maybe the health of someone very dear to you. Or maybe your present suffering is your financial situation. Or maybe your present suffering is relational. Maybe your present suffering is sitting in the room with you. Don't look at them right now. But think about your present suffering. What would that be for you? Because we don't have to look far to find people who are suffering. You might hear it when you're taking a walk through your neighborhood. A husband and wife who are just yelling at each other. Or maybe a good neighbor down the street that lost his job and now is about to lose his house. Or the lady at the grocery store who's just trying to make ends meet and is struggling to pay for just bare necessities with groceries. Maybe it's a student friend of yours in class who is dealing with an eating disorder. Maybe it's a coworker who's truly battling depression. And this isolation is not helping at all. But here's the point. Present sufferings can apply to all of us, any of us. And I believe it's really important to realize God understands this and his word speaks to it. So when you hear us talk about getting in the words because we need to hear what the word says about things like this, because too many Christians believe if they believe right, and act right, then God's going to make everything go right. And that often doesn't happen. If we do what we should, there will be no present sufferings. That God will bless me and take away all my problems. Well, here's the problem. When a Christian has that wrong thinking, and then they're dealing with their present suffering, their whole faith can be rattled. Sometimes they just give up on God altogether. I thought God was going to take care of me. Where are you, God? Why are you deserting me? Why are you letting this happen to me? If you really loved me, God, you wouldn't do this to me. But the Bible never teaches that anywhere. The Bible never teaches that if you are Christians, that you're going to be exempt from trouble. In fact, Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. The Greek word there that's rendered trouble is also translated persecution, distress, affliction, or tribulation. Jesus says it will happen. And so Paul is writing as if it's a given. Of course it's going to happen. Jesus said it. We know that it's true. In this world, there are going to be present sufferings. So here's the truth. Suffering has a way of revealing where our hope lies. Suffering has a way of revealing where our hope lies. When suffering comes, it reveals where you've put your hope. It's sort of the, the foundation is revealed. Everything that you've built on that. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian urologist and psychiatrist. Also a Holocaust survivor. He lived through imprisonment at Auschwitz. But while he was there, he observed how people responded to that dire suffering that they went through. And he wrote about it in his book called Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, these prisoners had everything stripped from them. Everything. They experienced brutal, cruel situations. Let me share a couple of observations from him. He noticed that some responded to this hopeless situation by becoming brutal themselves. They became cruel themselves. Maybe you've experienced this, or maybe you know someone who's responded in this way. They go through a horrible situation, and they become a bad person, or they react very negatively. 
They're harsh with people. They don't trust good intentions. They don't, they, they don't see good in situations or in people. So that's one way some people deal with hopelessness. Frankel also noticed that some of the prisoners would do well for a while, and then some of them would snap, and they would just give up. They would just lose all hope. He, he wrote this. Usually this happened quite suddenly. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the grounds for inspection. And no entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just lay there. They'd given up. They'd lost all hope. That's how some people respond to hopelessness. They put their hope in something that's temporary, doesn't last, it's stripped away, and they just cannot cope, and they just give up. Well, number three, here's another one. Frankel said that some people would put their hope in what their life would be like once they got out, once everything was restored the way that it was before they were in that situation. And so they would focus on the day they would get out, and they would be restored to their family. They'd get their job back. They'd get their status back. And everything would be like it was before that horrible ordeal. But Frankel said when these people did get out, the ones who were able to get out, and they realized that so much of their family had died, their job was no more. They didn't have a house to return to. There was no job. There was nothing for them. There was this overwhelming despair because that's what they were hoping for, and that was gone. Depression. Many of them even committed suicide. They could not handle it. They put their hope into a, a dream that was no longer a reality. Utter despair. He said the ones that truly overcame Auschwitz were those who, his words, had a fixed reference point beyond this world. Something that was beyond the grasp of death and destruction. Something that death couldn't touch. He wrote this, Life in concentration camps tears open the soul and exposes its depth and its foundations. That sufferings show the truth about what we've put our hope in. And if you put your hope in the wrong place, then when you go through a dark time, a difficult time, a present suffering... It's not going to go well for you. So Romans 8 challenges us to look beyond the suffering and to remember our hope is in heaven. So look again in chapter 8, pick up in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Notice what Paul is doing here. He says, after you've identified this present suffering, notice that it's not to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. Compare what you're going through now to what you're going to enjoy in the coming days in heaven. It's not worth comparing. Again, back to verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that, that is to be revealed in us. Let me share an illustration by Lee Strobel. He gives an example that I think just so well helps us to, to kind of put into our minds what Paul is describing here. He said, imagine you are having the first day of a new year, and it is a terrible day. It starts off with the root canal. And partway through the root canal, the anesthesia wears off. The pain is unbearable, and because the pain is so unbearable, you're driving home afterwards, and you get into a car accident, and it totals your car. Now, you're not injured, but your car is totaled. The other car is totaled. And then when you look closely and realize how bad it is, and you recognize the car, it's your spouse's car. Both cars are gone. Thinking, this couldn't be worse. So then when you finally get home, you notice there's a notice on your door, a foreclosure notice. Now, it could happen. And you're thinking, what could that be? And then you get a text, it's from your boss, saying that your job has been eliminated. You need to come in tomorrow and clear out your desk. Worst day ever. That's January 1. Now, January 2nd, you wake up thinking, man, kind of depressed. Don't know even where to begin. And then you open your email. 
Your rich uncle that passed away has left you $42 million. Well, when you get the money, you go out and buy the car of your dreams. In fact, you buy two cars of your dreams. In fact, you start designing, in a couple of months, you have built your dream home. It's amazing. Turns out Michael Jordan is your neighbor. He comes over and said, hey, you want to play some basketball? He's always coming over asking. Then you start a research company and accidentally finds the cure for cancer. And then there's this Tahitian island that comes up for sale and you can afford it, so you buy it. And so all this is coming together and you fast forward to the end of the year and you've got a friend that you've not seen for the whole year and says, hey man, how you been? Haven't caught up. What's your year been like? He said, oh man, it's been a great year. You want to come to my island? He said, what are you talking about? I remember the January 1st, you had a really bad day. I think I remember you posting about that or something. Because, oh yeah, I forgot about that. But compared to everything else in the year, it doesn't even compare. Does that help us to understand the perspective that heaven gives? The Bible never says that life is going to be easy. You may endure decades of chronic pain and illness and suffering in this life. Very difficult. But when you're in heaven and time is no more, we're going to have a way of of just have to be reminded of that suffering that was oh so temporary. Because in heaven there's no pain and no sickness and no tears. It is the best life. It's the life that God intended for us to have all along. So Paul says there is no comparison. That's what it's going to be for those who have their hope in Jesus. A great woman of faith, Teresa of Avila, was a Spanish noblewoman. But she also endured a lot of difficulty. Incredible loss in her life. Her own personal sickness and pain and suffering. Toward the end of her life, she summed it up like this. In light of heaven, the worst sufferings on this earth will be seen no more than a series of one night in an inconvenient hotel. Isn't that interesting? You ever had a night like that in an inconvenient hotel? Imagine going to maybe the mountains or the beach. You've got your friends got this, this mansion resort. You can stay free, but it's too far to drive in one day. So you've got to spend the night in a hotel. You don't make a reservation. Halfway there, you try to find a spot. When you finally stop, the only room available is in this shady place. You ever been in one of those where the bed is as old as you are? There's a smell that you can't quite identify, but it's definitely there. And you would think you would go to another hotel if there was a choice, but there's not. But even that, because you know where you're going, you can have a smile on your face and even endure that hotel for just one night. I think some of us need to hear this. Because to be candid, I think we can become oh so comfortable and oh so focused in this life. All of our attention is on this life. You know, when someone is deathly sick, it is good and right to pray for healing. The Bible tells us to pray. But what concerns me is when we act as if the worst thing possible for that person is for them to die and to be with Jesus forever in eternity. We got to visit with our daughter this weekend, and she asked about John Simmons. She knew John had had some very serious health concerns lately. She said, well, how's John Simmons doing? And so she was kind of explaining about how he'd had the surgeries and how he's undergoing the chemo right now, and, but he's doing okay. And she had said to her what you've probably heard John say when he would describe his situation, I'm good either way. I'm good either way. Have you heard John say that? I'm good either way. And he meant it. He's going to be good if he lives, and he's going to be good if he dies. Paul said, Philippians 1, 23 through 24, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Yeah, it's good to live. It's great to live. And to be a part of making the kingdom come here on earth. To make a difference. But our hearts are set in heaven. Our hope is in heaven. That's what we're looking forward to. Our hope isn't here. 
Well, keep reading Romans 8. Look at verses 22 and following. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. And the hope that is seen does not, is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul uses the pain of childbirth to teach us how to deal with these present sufferings and how we can have hope. If you're like me, you've read that kidney stones is probably the nearest pain-related ailment to giving birth. People talk about that. On a purely physical level, those two are extraordinarily painful. But how people process the pain of those two could not be more different. Because, you know, after a given birth, even a long, difficult, painful birth, that mother will look up at her husband and say, our baby is beautiful. And if God blesses us with another, it will be oh so worth it. Why? Because they have a baby to show for it. But when someone passes a kidney stone, when they finally get to that point, you never hear them say, I hope God blesses me with another. It just doesn't happen. Because while the pain is, is intense for both, the outcome is so different. That's what Paul is talking about here. Yes, there is present suffering. And it's like the pains of childbirth. You're going to look back and go, oh, but it's not worth comparing to the glory that we'll enjoy in heaven. Bertrand Russell was a philosopher early in the century, outspoken atheist. Maybe you've heard of his name. He wrote a book, Why I Am Not a Christian. When he was 81 years old, his health was deteriorating. He was interviewed by the BBC. There's a radio station there. They said, now that you're coming to the end of your life, what do you have to hang on to when death is so close? Russell said this, very honest, quite hopeless way. I have nothing to hold on to but grim, unyielding despair. I have to respect his honesty to be able to say that. Because in reality, all of his hopes were gone. He had nothing to look forward to. He had nothing but despair. See, the great message of Romans chapter 8 is if your hope is in heaven then whatever you're suffering through is like the pains of childbirth. But if your hope is not in heaven, it's not even as, it's, a kidney stone doesn't even come close to the despair. In verse 23, he explains where we also find this hope, that we're not left alone in these present sufferings, that we have the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we, to, what we ought to pray for, to pray it for we ought, for the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit is our divine translator. He knows the deepest parts of who we are, and he speaks to God on our behalf. He connects our hearts to God's. And some of you may need to hear this because of the immense pain that you are suffering, that you've been going through. Maybe you're spiritually numb. Maybe you're at a place where praying is hard. You don't feel like praying. You don't know how to pray. You don't even know what to ask God for. That's where I believe the Holy Spirit steps in and says, I'll take it from here. And he intercedes for us. I don't claim to fully comprehend how the Holy Spirit does this. But let me share a quick illustration that I think at least best sums it up for me. Over the years, I have been blessed to do mission work in several foreign countries what makes those work really well is when you have a good translator. 
Because if there's the difference in language, you must have that good translator. And some are better than others. I remember once learning that one of our translators in our group was not even a Christian. But he was still a good translator because truly to be a translator, all you need is to be fluent in both languages. And he was able to do that. But it is so much better when your translator is not only fluent in both languages, but also a brother in the Lord. They believe what you believe. They have the same hope that you have. They, they understand the Bible is inspired. And, they, and they're right there with you in what you're trying to accomplish. This picture on the screen is from one of the several trips the men from West 7th went to Mission Lazarus. I've got this same picture framed in my office. And it was time to say goodbye that year. You know, men can be rather <clears throat> men. And we just say goodbye, we're not that emotional. And so after a, a, a wonderful but hard week, we were saying goodbye. And, and we were all just, just that, saying goodbye. But when we three were saying goodbye, it was extra emotional for some reason. And I wasn't really thinking about the time until another guy on the trip pointed that out. But the three of us, Marvine and Esper Taco and I, were, were very emotional saying goodbye. I thought, why was that? It's not that the three of us were more emotional than the other guys on the trip. But something happened that was different. See, on that trip, all of us took part in Bible studies. But a lot of the men spent most of their time doing some kind of work there to help the people. They were digging latrines, and they were delivering food, and they were making repairs. There were all kinds of physical things. But I was spending every day in Bible study. And so Marvin or Espartaco, they were my translators every day, all week long. And there's something about it. Maybe you've been there before. When you share the power of the Word of God with someone, it connects you. And your spirits bond. You believe the same thing. You have the same passions. You have the same hope. And when that happens, you become kindred spirits. And the translator is the bridge. He makes the connection. He knows his people. He knows where they live. He knows what they're struggling with. He knows what they need to understand. He knows how much they need God in their lives. And so as I'm teaching and I'm trying to convey the word of God, I will make the, the point, and we develop this rhythm of me sharing something. I'm sharing the word, and my translator knows the word, but he also knows my heart. And then he looks at me without saying a word, and says to me with his eyes, I got this. And then he starts talking in their language, sharing the truth of God. It is a beautiful thing to experience. And the bond that is shared in that moment. Maybe you understand what I'm talking about. Maybe you've had someone in your life that you've shared the word with on that kind of level. And your hearts connect. This is what I believe is a small snippet of what the Holy Spirit does for us. He knows us from inside out. He knows God. He knows what God wants for us. And so when we go to pray to God and we don't know what to say or we mess it up in our own human ways, the Holy Spirit just with us says, I got this. And He intercedes for us. Paul says with groans too deep for words. He's talking with God with a strong, but one translation says, heartfelt desire for you. He wants your life to align with God's will and everything he's saying for us. He's speaking on our behalf. Let me close with this. Notice in this section two key words. One, of course, is hope. The word hope appears six times in this short section. But also notice a second key word. And it is also important. And that word is wait. In verse 23, he says, we wait eagerly. In verse 25 in the New Living Translation, it says, we must wait patiently and confidently. I find it interesting in verse 19, it says, for the creation waits with an eager longing. If your hope is truly in Jesus, 
along with all of creation, we have that eager longing, eager longing for the day God's glory will be revealed. That should describe our lives. Here's how other translations render that phrase. Eagerly waits with anticipation. Waiting eagerly. Eager expectation. And I love this one. Gazing eagerly as if with outstretched necks. That's the difference that hope makes right now. And we wait with hope. But we're eager with outstretched necks. Verse 18 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Can you see how different life looks for us when our hope is truly in heaven? Again, we're available for anyone who has a spiritual need or concern. Call an elder, call or minister. We'd love to help you. We want your hope to be in Jesus. I have good news to share this morning from the elders. We will resume in-person worship on May 24th, two weeks from today. And I want to give you an overview of what our restart plans are as of now. On May 1st, Governor Lee released guidance for houses of worship in Tennessee. This document made clear that these suggestions were not requirements, but were suggestions for each entity to consider as they make plans on how to return to worshiping together. These suggestions are good and point to a way for us to worship together while still trying to mitigate or decrease the spread of COVID-19. The elders and the ministerial staff have been meeting together virtually and in person to consider how this will best work here at West 7th. The worship committee, consisting of myself, Bill Alsop, John Law, Randy Owens, and Marty DeJarnett have been tasked with working on the details and we have been doing so. We will reopen in phases. And what I'd like to take just a moment and do this morning is describe to you what phase one will look like when we meet together here at the building on May 24th at 9 a.m. We will meet together for worship only. In-person classes will not meet during the first phase. Worship will continue to be streamed online it will be streamed through the church website, on Facebook, through YouTube, for those who need it, for those who are not yet comfortable to return to the building for worship. Those who are considered to be vulnerable to more severe COVID-19 infection are encouraged to continue to worship at home. Those people include persons 65 years and older, those who have chronic health conditions, those who have problems with their immune system, such as autoimmune diseases or cancer patients who are on chemotherapy. On May 24th, if you are sick, if you have fever, if you have cough, if you've been exposed to someone who is positive for COVID-19, if you've traveled internationally or if you've traveled within the United States to places that are hot spots for this infection, please stay home. The nursery will be closed. However, mothers, if you're here with your children and you need to take your child to the nursery yourself, you may do so. The cry room will be available. We will be socially distanced in the auditorium and the, in the balcony. The gym will be used for overflow. More details on how this will work will come later. Wearing a mask or face covering is strongly recommended. If you do not have one, the Sewing Sisters have been making thousands of these, and masks will be available at the building for you. I would like to take a moment to speak about, about masks and face coverings. Masks help decrease spread of COVID-19 as well as other types of infections. I wish they were more effective than what they are, 
but they're better than nothing. Wearing a mask may help protect you as well as others. It's recommended that children wear masks also. However, children under the age of two should not do so. If you've not been wearing a mask, I encourage you to do so when you come to the building for worship. I understand that people have different opinions, opinions about wearing masks, but consider this for just a, a moment. While you may feel comfortable not wearing a mask, you will be around people who are not comfortable if you're not wearing a mask. Out of consideration for others, please wear one. These have been most unusual times that none of us have seen before. We have not been worshiping together in person for, for two, two months now. We are doing our best on figuring out how to meet together as safely as possible. Please be patient with us as we work through the details. If you have questions or helpful suggestions, please let us know. Remember, more details will follow. And I look forward to seeing you in two weeks. That's coming back together. I'm longing for it. I'm hoping for it. I'm eagerly awaiting it. But it will not hold a candle to what Randy's been talking about this morning. The hope that we have of our salvation and when we see Jesus. And it's why we can say, Lord, come quickly. Pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our salvation. And Father, we pray for that day when he returns and we are with him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.